Welcome to the Actionable Futurist Podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. An area I haven't covered on the podcast to date, but is an important and evolving space, is that of self-sovereign or distributed identity. To dive deeper into this topic, I'm delighted to have on today's show a former colleague of mine, Marie Wallace, who I work with at IBM. She's now Managing Director, Digital Gender Lead at Accenture. Welcome, Marie. Hi, Andrew. It's lovely to be here. It's so good to see you again. We're not in the same room, but I always enjoyed our conversations at IBM about data and social and all things in life. So this is a fascinating topic. Uh, When we met at IBM, you'd already been there for some 13 years. So perhaps you could explain your journey to date from your work in natural language processing at IBM to leading digital identity at Accenture. I was 20, nearly 22 years in IBM research uh, technically doing kind of research and innovation. And it's all been predominantly around AI and um, natural language processing, analytics in, in various incarnations. We built our first smart assistant back in, I think it was about 2007 or 2008. So been in this for a long time. All the analysis and the data that I was working with was predominantly personal data. So I got increasingly interested in the ethics of data science, privacy. In a digital society, when a lot more data is going to be flowing around, people don't have the same agency over their data. They don't know what happens with their data. They don't really understand anything about their data. And it's fundamentally going to be more used more and more. So there's more risk associated in the ethics. So anyway, to make a long story short, this got me really interested in this idea of self-sovereign identity. Less about the identity piece and more just about self-sovereign data. How do I have greater agency over my own data? And, and that's really what got me into this space. And then in the last probably six years, I built something called the IBM Digital Health Pass when I was at IBM, which um, was used as the Excelsior Pass in New York during COVID. And then subsequently um, did a variety of different projects. Uh, and essentially, the reason I joined Accenture and why I'm really excited to be here is we've now got to the stage where it's not mainstream yet. It's not like market adoption, but people are slowly realizing the value and the importance and the challenges of a digital society and the need to have a sort of decentralized identity approach. Why I've joined Accenture is because really it's about reinventing the enterprise, reinventing the world, reinventing digital society, and thinking about how we do this in a really ethical, a really privacy-preserving way with empowering people with their data. Accenture has lots and lots of clients across pretty much every industry and every geo, and we're working with them. So I've got some really interesting use cases that we're exploring with a variety of our clients that all you know, rotate around decentralized identity. I'd love to get into some of those use cases that you can talk about. And I've been talking about the fact that we will own our own data for some time. And as the technology evolves, as a futurist, my predictions become true. And I kept saying, you know, when that whole Facebook Cambridge Analytica thing happened a few years ago, I was surprised at how blasé many people were about their data. Initially, there were lots of headlines, you know, oh my goodness, they did this with our data. And now it's kind of fallen back. And people, I think, have sort of forgotten the amount of data they have out there. I want to own my own data, but there are challenges around that. And, And SSI will help solve that. How do you explain SSI to my mum? And on your blog and a number of colleagues you've been talking with on LinkedIn, you talked about SSI with the example of streaming music like Spotify or Napster. You coined the phrase streaming trust. 
So maybe using that as an analogy, how does self-sovereign identity work using that analogy? If we think about the music um, industry, there's a few things that are interesting. One, we all remember, or actually the older of us remember, some of the younger ones maybe don't, but we remember buying big stacks of CDs and you'd have a big CD case in your living room with all the CDs that you'd bought. And then if you wanted to have a dinner party, you'd have to take out a CD and put, put it in. So you bought all the data, all the songs, even though there was maybe only three or four songs or maybe on the CD you might want to listen and you might listen to them not that often. Um, and then you have to keep buying you know, more and more CDs. So, so that's kind of the old analogy. And, and I equate that very much to the way things work today in terms of data. People buy data. They, they might be buying it from a third-party data aggregate, or they might actually be effectively buying it or getting it directly from you. They're, they ask for a stack of data, and then they stick that stack of data in a big MDM somewhere. And then they have to manage about, you know, manage security and risk of data theft. And so they have all the costs, the same way we did, of managing a big stack of data. What streaming did for music was allow people to say, I don't need to own any songs. I don't need to have stacks of CDs. But what I can do is, is I can get the song when I need to. So when I'm sitting down for dinner, I can say, this is the song I need. And you basically pay on demand. So, so that was basically the model. And we all remember the content battles that content providers did not want to go down this route. And what happened is they went out of business and a new generation of companies came around that really took advantage of the streaming model. And I think this is the same thing with data. If we take a very simple analogy, we're doing some really interesting work around the kind of worker credentialing. And let's just take the simple analogy. Back in February, I joined Accenture and I had to go through the onboarding process. And what you do today with onboarding, you have to have proof of prior employment. So you've a letter proving you worked for a specific company. You've got your transcript or, from, or you, you basically tell them, you self-attest, you, you got a degree from this college. And so all this data, you, know, you, you provide them photocopies or you self-attest. And then they either themselves go or they have to pay a third party to go verify all that data, go to the college. And what happens is you go back to these institutions that, that verify academic data and they'll get all the academic data and then they'll pass back the data. So now what you have is done all this manual work. And the reality is you share all this data about, say, academic credentials as an example that you don't need. Now, what we're proposing is with a verifiable credential when I get when I qualify or when I when I work for a company I get proof of employment when I leave it I still have proof of employment but it's just expired you know the the date of employment was this date and this date when I then want to get a new job I just have to exchange verifiable credentials it happens as I need it the receiving company Accenture doesn't even need to store they can store, record the record but they don't need to store all the data they only need to store the minimum amount of information they needed to complete the transaction which was to hire Marie to make her a permanent employee so it completely changes the dynamics, both in terms of the user experience, how easy and quick it is to, to, to onboard with a company or to get a new credit card or whatever the process might be, the minimum data that the receiving company actually really needs to hold. Because as one other example I'll give, which I always think is a really nice one, is your address. People's addresses change all the time. Why do banks need to store addresses? The only time they need the address is when they want to send you a letter, which they should be able to send a quick proof request, check your address, and then send you your letter if they have to physically send you a letter. So there's all this data we're, ha we're holding on to that we don't need to be. And that's really how I equate music to this kind of streaming data and streaming trust. We, we get the data on demand when we need it. And it's a whole different business model. There's a recent example where this went horribly wrong in Australia. And my, my, one of my former employees, Optus, had a data breach. And people then realized that Optus had been storing their full driver's license. Now, in your world, if you then, the driver's license verification here in the UK, it's the DVLA, you basically have to say, do you have a valid driver's license and are the credentials correct? Yes or no? It's almost a flag. What people were surprised about is that Optus had stored the full driver's license number and everything else. And of course, when that was compromised, people's driver's licenses were exposed. And Optus, I think, had to pay something like three 
three or four hundred dollars per person. And there was literally a lineup outside the motor vehicle registration for people to get their new driver's license numbers. So in your world, what would have happened there is that there would have been an exchange of verifiable credentials between the government and the telco provider to say, yes, Andrew Grill has that license. And all they'd be storing would be a verifiable check mark rather than the driver's license. Is that how it works in practice? You're coming to really what differentiates the decentralized model. The way decentralized works is the individual is issued their data. If I want to rent a car from Hertz, I go to Hertz, I self-attest my driving deeds, and I have to give normally a lot more information than they need because they then have to use that data to go back and verify with the DMV or with the that this is a valid driver's license, either using an API or something. So I give a load of data and then they have to go verify. And then I have to give consent that so that they can consent to share the data. So you get all this palaver of consent and security and privacy because these two companies are sharing your data. Whereas in the self-sovereign identity world, they don't talk to each other at all. It's not the business of the DMV whether I'm renting a car at Hertz. So the DMV issue me my driver's license and I have my driver's license in my wallet as a cryptographically verifiable document. And I then in turn share that directly with Hertz as an example, as a proof exchange. And what Hertz store may just be, yes, the proof exchange was successful. So they might, for example, before you can rent the car, they might need you to prove that you are who you say you are. So proof of identity, proof of a driver's license, and maybe it might even be proof of insurance if you can use your insurance. You respond to three proofs and then they give you your, your car. So it could be as simple as that moving forward. But the person is the agent that does the exchange of data, not two organizations sending your data back and forth without your visibility. I hold the credentials. How can you trust that the credentials I hold are real and verifiable? And who trusts the trust provider? Or is that an unfair question? It's actually the nub of the question, to be honest with you, Andrew. So I think there's a couple of things. Somebody once said to me, you know, they're really surprised Accenture was interested in this because isn't this like anarchy? So no, because there still is trusted issuers. There still is the DMV issuing drivers. I mean, that fundamentally doesn't change. The DMV, as an example, is issuing a cryptographically signed document using their private key that nobody else has to Marie. So, so none of the data elements within that document can be changed because otherwise the verification will. So that's one, one protection. The other critical thing is how does the DMV know that it's issuing the data to indeed Marie Wallace? So this is where you have to have a digital wallet which is tightly bound to that individual's identity. And very often you also actually probably want it bound to a device so that if Marie's data or wallet or something was stolen, you'd have to get her phone and you'd have to get her biometrics to get into the phone and then you might have to get a passkey. So you'd actually have to do a lot to try to get into our wallet and then to be able to use it. The critical thing is you need a super secure wallet and the issuer needs to be issuing to a secured, trusted wallet. The verifier then obviously needs to trust the wallet and they need to trust the issuer. That's where the trust network comes into place. And there isn't a single network. It's ultimately a network of networks. And ultimately, the verifier does indeed need to trust they either need to directly trust the issuer. So if the DMV is publishing their keys, then you as a verifier can say, I want to keep my own trust registry. Or you might want to trust a third-party registry that's like Yellow Pages, that is managing onboarding of all these different entities to say, yep, these are entities. Now, trust beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If I'm in some country, I don't know, some country somewhere, they might for whatever reason decide we're not going to trust the DMV. It's not like a rule you have to trust. The only critical thing is you have to be able to identify the entity to know this is indeed the DMV that is the official issuer of driver's license for the United States. The trust network and the trust registries are a critical component of this system working. But these can be something that an, an organization maintains for themselves. 
And that works actually in cases where you have small ecosystems. But for very large ecosystems, obviously what you're going to end up having is kind of networks of trust registries and maybe even government mandated or government managed trust registries. So you mentioned the word wallet. And when I think wallet, I think blockchain. But we talked off air and there's actually no link between the two. So could you do some myth busting that self-sovereign identity doesn't need a blockchain? No, it doesn't. Now, this is maybe not the most secure way of doing it. But during COVID, as an example, countries around the world, Europe being a good example, wants to be able to issue COVID passes. And they didn't want to have to build everything on blockchain, but they wanted to have a wallet. They wanted to have verifiable credentials. They wanted to have the individual having the agency and they want it to be peer-to-peer on the edge. So they wanted everything that is self-sovereign identity. But in the case of that, for example, in Europe, they basically had the, the public key directory, the trust registry for Europe was a the EU gateway. So it's an actual gateway, a centralized system that was the trust registry for Europe. Now, in the United States, on an example, they didn't have that sort of centralization. So if we look at, for example, New York, so the Excelsior Pass in New York, New York State had its trust registry for um, its Excelsior passes. And that was in, I think, might have been a database. And then when we built the Digital Health Pass, we built indeed it on blockchain. So you can use many different technologies in different ways. Blockchain is one of them. And and in in certain cases, it provides some very, very nice characteristics, but you don't have to use blockchain. So people use different technologies for doing that. And that's perfectly fine. For me, the key thing about the concept of self-sovereign identity is essentially the philosophy, the concept, the design. That's what has to be, be respected. So for a while now, I've been talking about the concept of tokens, and I've been using the example of a blue tick against the roles of my LinkedIn profile. So you know that I did actually work at IBM in the roles I had from 2013 to 2017. So let's look at how that would work in practice. I understand the whole trust network, but IBM would have to be able to issue a credential to me or to LinkedIn, and LinkedIn would have to verify that. How would that work in practice? And what's the incentive for LinkedIn or me or IBM to even offer that service? Funny that you should mention that, because this is actually something that we're really in the in the process of exploring exploring here within Accenture. I've had some interesting conversations with a number of our clients over the last month. The incentives around releasing individual data to them, you know, respecting your customers. And there's a surprising amount of interest from the companies I speak with, with releasing data to their customers for a number of different reasons. One is they want to minimize the footprint of PII that they're holding. So there's the risk element. They don't want to be holding a load of data about you that they don't need to be holding. So there's a really attractive about you having more and more autonomy over your own data. There's a real differentiation if you're a company that empowers individuals with their own data. So I'll give you a very, very simple example. It seems trivial, but it it could be very powerful. Most companies, if you're a customer, they generate a risk profile or a credit score of some description, like how good is Maria paying her bill on time? I mean, all companies do that. So they know which customers are very good. They pay the bills on time and things like that. That's never data that I get. Just imagine if the company released it to me. So then if I'm renting an apartment and they, they want to, well, I pay, I can, well, I can prove, you know, that my local telecom provider or the electricity supply board or whatever, here's the ver- to verify that I've always paid my bill on time. That's a very simple example of the incentive to the individual is this is a company I do business with that is giving me value in and above the service that they're also giving me. When I was in IBM, Jenny Rometty um, quoted as data is the new currency or data is the fuel that's going to drive our economies. And if, it, if it's a currency, if it's a fuel, it should be leveraged, it should be utilized. And I, as a citizen, should be able to leverage 
the data for value. So I would argue there are a growing number of incentives. If we look, say, to the proof of employment, so just think of it. So, okay, proof of employment can be very useful for, for companies in just simply giving access to systems, giving access to the building. I'm a, an Accenture employee, so I can get into the Accenture building. So there's that kind of obvious benefits. There's also benefits for how, do I, how I represent myself on LinkedIn. And the incentive for me as an individual is to increase the trust of people looking at me in LinkedIn, to increase my reputation. The value to LinkedIn is they have trusted more valuable data that everybody's going to trust. And the value to my company, as an example, might be you know increasing, okay, there's a risk that if my profile increases, I might get poached by other companies. But again, I, I think of it as like, you know, if you love somebody, set them free. And if they love you, they'll come back to you. And if they don't, they never loved you in the first place. So there is an element that you have to trust people with this data. If you go a step further, so you mentioned things like check marks for other types of data. So we're also doing some really interesting work to look at employees and what other information would they really benefit from? If I think about developing my career. How do I identify? Do I have the right skills? And what sort of training should I do? What sort of job should I do? What sort of project should I do? Just imagine if I'm collecting over time all the data that represents the work I've been doing, the formal education I've done, the certifications I've taken, maybe even the jobs I've done within a company. So while I may not be able to expose the fact that I worked with company X on project Y, it could be issued as an obfuscated verifiable credential because, again, all a verifiable credential needs to prove is you worked with a Fortune 500 company in the automotive space doing X and you got a five-star rating. So you can, over time, you can, your CV isn't this static piece of a snapshot. It's every data element. So if we think about AI, so now we think about AI and the role of AI and as, as basically a career manager helping me with my career, theoretically have a wonderful set of data points that I can now really get personalized career advice and really figure out what jobs I could win. I could be going for both me as a, an employee, but also the employer will have a much, much easier time of finding the right employee. The potential is huge. But again, AI is only as good as the data that feeds it. We need really good data. And this is one of the interesting challenges around credentialing. And then if I own my data and I can choose to give it to another downstream system and I have much more control over that. So I think that's fantastic. Just back to LinkedIn, they're starting to do a level of verification. I've seen people now with verified profiles where they basically send an email to your work address and say, well, do you work there? And if you have a, a at Accenture.com email address, then you must work there. So they say that that's, that's correct. At least they're starting to do that. But I think the next phase probably requires effort on both sides. And they're owned by Microsoft. Why wouldn't they want to do it? And they are actually doing it already. There was an announcement a few months ago. So Microsoft Entra, which is the, the new rebranded set of Microsoft identity offerings, and they have Entra Verified ID, which is indeed a soft sovereign identity solution that issues verifiable credentials. It can issue them directly to your authenticator app. So if you have the authenticator app, you can get your verified credentials, proof of employment as an example. And indeed, LinkedIn leverages that. So LinkedIn is already providing support for verifiable credentials. So this is where we are seeing use cases emerge. We're seeing companies starting to adopt. Sometimes it's not immediately visible because the average Joe on the street doesn't care whether this is a verifiable credential, but they care about a more uh, seamless, frictionless user experience. And that is, I think, where the, where the value is really going to come, where this concept of verifiable data is going to enable these more frictionless user experiences. And the other critical thing is as well, I don't talk so much about privacy these days. I think more about safety because when you talk about privacy, privacy, well, I have nothing to hide. It's not about that. It's about you being safe as you move through your digital world. And I think safety is the more important issue for everybody out there. 
the amount of fraud that exists, the amount of money, it's mind blowing, the amount of money on if things like phone scams, all sorts of scams. The reality is, you know, verifiable credentials can, can solve all those problems as well. So I think there's a really interesting set of drivers at this point in time between risk, between cost, between fraud, between frictionless experiences that starting to make verifiable data really relevant and really timely. If I now own my own identity, where does it get stored and who should store it? Using the analogy, data is currency. I think about it very similarly to think about banking. Like years ago, people helped put all their money under their mattress and they felt it was safe there and whatever. And then eventually they started trusting banks. I would argue, and this has always been the vision of self-sovereign identity, is that ultimately in the future, what you'll have is you'll have wallet providers and there'll be many of them. So you can choose the same way you choose what bank you want to go to. And those wallet providers will have secure, privacy-preserving, protected wallets that will also have both a cloud wallet and a mobile wallet. So it, it will also mean you'll have backups to the cloud. If you lose your device, you can basically brick it if you need to. So I think that's ultimately is what's going to happen. And that way, it'll be much more like having an online bank. The thing that's nice about this model from a as we start to adopt these standards, these open standards, if you don't like the wallet you're currently using and the service you're getting and the capabilities you're getting, you just go to another one. So like you would change bank accounts. So so that's kind of where I think ultimately this needs to go in order to make this sort of data ownership to, to kind of offload the responsibility of managing data from the companies to the individuals. You obviously need to provide them the tools that allow them to do that. I use one password. I've been using a password manager for about 15 years now, and I tell everyone in all my talks that they should look at doing that. They're now adding things like passwordless. They're looking at pass keys. Is that the place, if I trust one password and they have two-factor authentication on top of that, they have a mobile app. I actually had my phone stolen two weeks ago and it was really easy to get everything back because I had one device that I was able to authenticate everything again. Is that the style of provider that I already trust with thousands of passwords that could become my wallet provider? Is is that where things are headed? In theory, like I also use one password I've used them for years as well. I definitely come from the concept of I, I like to have a vault. I guess the only thing I would say, and I don't know what where one password is going, going or what their vision is. But I, I think the difference with verifiable credentials is that it's not just about access and authentication. I would argue that when people think of identity today and they think about tokens, they're thinking about access tokens. It's basically a one-trick pony. It's all about access. And access is fine. If you think about all the digital touch points between you and, and specifically as we get more and more digital, accessing something is actually the fraction of the interactions you actually have with the company. So it's all the other data element that's needed, you know, your address credential that might be issued from the post office or your banking credentials, your health credentials. There's a whole slew of types of data that you use or that you will use all the time as part of your daily life. And being able to make that super frictionless, the exchange of that, either not necessarily the exchange of the data, but it might be just exchange proof requests. I'm ordering food on a menu. You know, how do I make sure that I'm not allergic to anything on that menu? Your phone has the allergies that you have, and it basically strips out, marks up the allergies. Like that, that's not a difficult thing to do. You don't want to share your health data with the, with the retailer. The data is on your device. And then you can basically have this personalized user experience directly on your device. The really interesting thing I think about self-sovereign identity is it's a philosophy, it's a concept, but it's also a, a bit of a head mind map, it's a bit of a head wrecker for people because you have to flip your perspective of the world on its head. You have to look at things completely differently. But once people do, then you start seeing all these really exciting use cases, but it, it requires a bit of a head flip for you to kind of see the use cases. They're not necessarily evident. 
Give me some tangible examples where this is working already and other companies can say, oh, we can do that too. Obviously, we know about government IDs. We know about EU, EIDAS, for example. Europe is going to be issuing digital wallet to every citizen end of 2024, 2025, and everybody will have digital IDs, which will be verifiable credential. So we know kind of governments are starting to do this. There's a couple of areas that I, I think are really interesting. I mean, there's many areas, that, but I talk, come back to the worker example. I like that example for a couple of reasons. One is, it takes a significant amount of existing cost out of the business. So it costs a lot already. And particularly as we're moving more toward that gig economy, I spent 21 years in IBM. The next generation coming will have spent 21 years at any company. People are moving. So the turnaround is a lot higher, which means the cost of every time you bring people on board is a lot higher. So the thing about worker credentialing that's really interesting is because there's a big cost-saving impact. And also, as we move toward the skills-based economies and skills-based organizations, optimizing your workforce, that becomes a huge challenge. So I do think we're already starting to see, LinkedIn was an example, they're already starting to support verifiable credentials for proof of employment. We're starting to see Microsoft issuing this to lots and lots of, um, of their clients. We in Accenture are starting to look at this more broadly, not just about issuing proof of employment, but looking at things like certifications, academic qualifications, skills. So, so I think the worker space is particularly interesting. And there's a lot of companies that it's a really easy sell because they've got a lot of expense at the moment uh, and this this helps them them address that. I think the other area that is getting a lot of traction is around organizational identity and verification. So we're seeing the likes of Glyph and the work they've done around kind of the whole governance of, of issuing um, uh, organization identities. We're working with some projects, uh, which I can't talk specifically about, but hopefully later in the year we'll be able to talk about, where they're looking to become a network of issuing organization IDs and then integrating kind of trust within the supply chain. So the amount of fraud, we think about fraud with individual personal identities, but the amount of organizational fraud is eye-wateringly large. So how can we kind of take some of that fraud out of the system? So I think organizational identity and credentialing is very interesting. We've also seen it, the concept of things like, how do I make certain information public? So things like green credentials. So if I'm, for example, an organization, I want my, have ESG, my ESG credentials. And how do I, number one, prove that I've been audited from a trusted provider of these checks? And then how do I share them with other suppliers I'm working with or companies I want to supply to? But maybe I want to also share them with consumers. So you could imagine a world moving forward where, you know, I might just want to look at a website, but I might want to, whenever I buy a product, check the green status of the company that manufactures the products. And it's not a difficult thing. Again, to the example of when you're scanning stuff, you check to see what your allergies are, you might check to see how green the company is. We're seeing organization credentials as something that's really interesting as well. And then there's a whole slew of things around the hospitality sector. How do we make the whole travel experience kind of uh, more seamless and touchless. That's the key thing. So there's, th those are some of the use cases that we're seeing a lot of interest in. Where does it play a part in decentralized identity? And what are some typical use cases? And, and what are you seeing the opportunity for AI right now? I've worked in it for 20 odd years. There's so many different use cases of AI. When I think specifically about identity and verifiable credentials, there's, I know there's been a lot of hype about ChatGPT and it is very impressive. But at the end of the day, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you want highly specialized recommendations and analysis and matching or whatever to understand something about an individual, data in, data out. So the more reliable, trustworthy, 
data and the more data elements you can bring into the algorithm, particularly because they, they can now handle a huge amount of data and they can handle a huge amount of complexity, the more data you give it, the better results you're going to get out the other side. I think the credentialing is interesting on two fronts. Number one is it releases more and more data to the individual. So it actually generates more data because there's a lot of data today, but it's sitting in silos. So if you think about, you know, the example I gave, you know, companies might have your credit score, whatever, and they have it in a system or LinkedIn has a bucket load of God only knows what data about us. And Facebook, all these companies have a lot of information about us. But just imagine if that data was released to us in a, in a way that we can use. So it becomes usable data for us. So that then obviously could feed potentially AI. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the verified credential self-sovereign identity is that how we share that data with AI engine, again, is putting us in more in the driving seat. So it's giving us greater autonomy and agency. It's allowing it to be shared in maybe pseudonymous ways. So maybe our actual identity isn't exposed. It can kind of create these really interesting ways of us sharing lots and lots and lots of data, potentially data points with these algorithms in a way that we choose to share it whether we want to be completely de-identified or we want to be identified or whatever the case is. So there's one interesting example that I really like because it, it's a good example. It was a healthcare scenario. I think a while ago, the EU issued some RFP around looking at citizen health. And it's a really interesting example because it's this incremental idea that I might incrementally be sharing some information about myself anonymously for the purposes of getting health recommendations and really targeted. You need to think about this diet or maybe you should be on this drug or whatever the case is, you get some. But at some point in time, this, the engine maybe recognizes something concerning. So now it wants you to go see a doctor. So now there's going to have to be some identification. But what is this incremental identification? You can be completely anonymous to start with. You can use these algorithms completely anonymously. If they share something important that you maybe want to identify yourself, then you can choose to incrementally do that. So I think Verified Credentials just gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of how you're sharing the data. It's not a magic wand. There still is going to be a lot of issues around ethics. That goes without saying. I think empowering people with their own data and making companies kind of putting pressure on companies to release your data back to you, I think is really important. And I do think it actually has an interesting positive side effect on the ethics of AI. Just one quick example. Just imagine if all the insights that a company generates about you, they had to release to you. Like I feel really uncomfortable that a company knows more about me than I know about myself. That doesn't sit right with me. So fine, they can use the data, but they have to tell me. And the thing that's interesting about that is it would actually be a self a self-managing cycle because if if I have to tell an individual I'm targeting them because I know they're easy to manipulate and I have to tell them oh the reason you're getting this is all of a sudden they're going to have to be careful about do I actually want to use that property do I want to generate that because I'm going to have to tell somebody I'm doing that so even if you don't tell them the algorithms it, it's it really is a self so I, I do think there's a really interesting benefit of transparency and giving people more of their data so I'm a geek, I'm a futurist, so I want things to happen now. I would love to be able to manage my own data in my own wallet right now. And we mentioned ChatGPT, and you mentioned you've been working in AI for a long time. So I think what happened when ChatGPT was launched is it removed the friction. Anyone can now use the tool without having to write AI models and scripts and pythons. They can actually play with an AI model. It's a great demo. It's, it's not perfect. 
What is the frictionless moment where it's another chat GPT moment where self-sovereign identity just becomes so demanded, everyone's saying, I need access to this, I want this. Is there a frictionless moment like chat GPT or are we a long way off? And what I'm really trying to say is who's got to really drive this? Is it governments? Is it individuals? Is it companies? How do we accelerate this? I'm sure you're more than excited about this space. How does it become a reality by the end of 2024? One of the reasons I joined Accenture is because I was really interested on the demand side. If we think about, again, the currency example, there's been a lot of focus over the last years on the supply side of credentials, governments issuing IDs and, you know, so all this kind of the supply side, how do I issue credentials? Obviously, nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'd love a wallet with a load of data in it. What you do is you need it because you need to solve a particular business problem. I think the demand side is what's going to drive it. And that's where the friction user experiences come in. So for example, it might be, you know, the telecom providers introduce this into their system. And whenever you make a telephone call or you receive a call, you receive a text message, you can see a little green check mark to see, is this really my bank or is this somebody pretending to be my bank? So you could start to kind of get rid of trillions of dollars worth of fraud out of the system. So that's an example. That's a really big use case, which could really start to say, oh, hang on a second, organizations have to be having verifiable credentials because otherwise they're not going to get the green travel and I'm never going to answer a call from a company that doesn't have the green check mark. So that's an example maybe of a kind of a big use case that could be a, a chat GTP like kind of transformation. I'm not sure that's what's going to happen. I think what we're going to probably see is more kind of incremental. So it might be we, we have specific types of use cases. We see, for example, in the healthcare space, we see movement around things like, you know, provider credentialing. So there'll be certain industries that start to introduce this because they need to do it for various reasons. It might be for, for risk, for cost savings. So, so doctors will need to have their, their wallet with their credentials because they'll need it to get into the, the operating room or to, to get into their, the hospital or to prescribe drugs, as an example. They'll need to prove their license to basically prescribe certain types of drugs. I tend to think that we might we may not have that big chat GPT moment. You could end up having a big moment where, you know, all of a sudden it starts to become this is the telecom provider that gives me the safest experience and that everybody wants to go. And then everybody has to get on board. All the other telecom providers have to get on board. I don't have an answer. It's hard to know whether it's going to be big or incremental. I, I tend to think at the moment we're seeing something a bit more incremental. What are you seeing as the biggest challenges in a decentralized identity world? The biggest challenge is probably the very fact that it's decentralized means you have multiple parties participating. A wallet, the critical thing is the wallet. So, you, so if you think about the decentralized, you have an issuer of data, your DMV or whatever. You have the issuer of data, you have the verifier, consumer, you know, who's going to request the proof and you've got the wallet. To make this really, really frictionless, seamless, you ideally want to have multiple wallets that people can choose from. And that can interact with issuers from different types of issuing technologies. So interoperability. So I guess if I was to think about what are the big challenges today, I think interoperability, I mean, these are something everybody knows. I'm not saying anything somebody doesn't know. We're working on it. I think we're really seeing companies really, really working on interoperability. So it's getting a lot better, but it's not there yet. I think interoperability is a big thing. And to your point about frictionless, I think what we really have to do is we have to figure out how can we introduce verifiable credentials and this proof exchange protocol concept into existing applications or entering new classes of applications that make it easier to make telephone calls, to transfer money, to manage your career or whatever. People don't really need to be thinking about verifiable credentials. What they need to be thinking about how quickly they can apply for a job or find a job. That's sort of, I think, where we need to get to. I'm kind of excited by the next year. As I said, you, there's a lot going on. It's not clear which use case is going to end up being the killer use case. Watch this channel. I want to control my own data. What are the first steps I should take? I guess my call out to people will be slightly different. I think one is, as to your point, I definitely use a password vault. I just think that's just basic housekeeping. Everybody should be using a password vault or some description to manage their passwords because you, you know, 
you don't want identity fraud. That's a big thing. But I think my bigger call out really to people in general would be to start to care about your data and to start to push back because for us to make this really happen, to allow people to be empowered with their data, obviously we want to have the use cases for companies will benefit from it. They might benefit from revenue generation, cost saving, risk mitigation. It might be these new frictionless experiences that will help them get more clients. It needs to be a bottom up as well. The consumer needs to say, well, hang on a second, I want, I want my data. I want to know more about what these companies know about me. I want to be able to have a frictionless experience when I rent a car or when I get a job or when I go to the bank. I've forgotten why I haven't replaced my credit card in 20 odd years because it's literally it's worse than getting teeth extracted from the dentist it was painful the amount of checks or whatever that have to happen there's no reason why that should have to happen in today's world so i think we we need to see consumers putting more and more pressure on the companies that they work with to have a grassroots movement around self-sovereign identity and also putting a value on our data. We don't actually understand how much it's worth. Years ago, I used to put up a cartoon in my talks that showed the value we had to people in terms of advertising revenue. And it was in hundreds of dollars or pounds. And you often think, well, why don't I get a cut of that if you're making all this money out of my data? To your point, I want some of my data back. I want the enriched data back that I can then use in other systems. And now we've had that chat GPT moment. We can now plug in our data to AI to make it useful and make our lives much easier. So I think people are going to say, maybe, maybe, Maybe ChatGPT has done more than we think. It's that watershed moment where now AI can do things for us, but we need the right data and we need our own data. And now it's available on a platter if people make it easy for us to access it. Having people more data literate and caring about their identity and their safety. So we, we stopped the conversation yesterday about privacy, but make it about safety. I want to be safe in the world. So I don't want my data filtering out there and everybody's grandmother knowing things about me so that they can steal my identity. So that's kind of my call out for people to start to care about this. So we're almost out of time and we're up to my favorite part of the show, the quick fire round when we learn more about our guests. iPhone or Android? Android. Window or aisle? Aisle. In the room or in the metaverse? I work from home, so I'm going to say in the metaverse. <laughs> Your biggest hope for this year and next? That we see self-sovereign identity go mainstream. I wish that AI could do all of my... Meetings, particularly all my prep work and all my actions afterwards, like all that, the mess around meetings. That would take save so much time for me. What's the app you use most on your phone? Google Maps. I couldn't find my way out of a paper bag. The best piece of advice you've ever received? Don't be afraid to fail. How do you want to be remembered? That I made our digital world a little bit safer. As this is the Actionable Futures podcast, what three actionable things should our audience do today when it comes to managing their own identity? I use one password. So I think managing your passwords is really, really important to, to think about that. To be just very alert and be very aware when you're sharing data, when you're accepting these checkboxes. I mean, I'm the worst in the world for accepting you know things without necessarily reading the fine print, but at least be a little bit aware. Even if you don't read all the fine print, just be conscious of every time you're sharing data because that data... If it's, if it's with a company you're not familiar with, it can be used potentially for questionable things, including stealing your identity if you're not careful. Maria, fascinating chat about a really interesting topic. How can people find out more about you and your work? You know, I'm on LinkedIn. You'll be able to find me there. I, I tend to blog. I have a blog, allthingsanalytics.com. That's from my analytics days, so this, but I still kept the URL, so allthingsanalytics.com is me. Come to my blog, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me. I, I talk about this quite a lot, and I'll be continuing to share more over the next year. Great to connect with you again. I've always enjoyed our discussions. I really enjoyed this one today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. It was great chatting with you again. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com 
And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast.